So welcome. It's very nice to have you all with us today. Each Sunday for July and August, we've been taking a different parable that Jesus taught. Sometimes they start off a little bit arbitrary or abstract, but hopefully after spending a little bit of time understanding the context of what Jesus was teaching about to that original audience, it makes sense to us in a new way, and we hear Jesus talking to us through that familiar story. Uh, today we uh, learn about the parable of the contentious farm, Matthew 21, 33 to 45. Uh, thank you, worship team, for reading that to us. And uh, let's spend a little bit of time trying to uncover both what Jesus was teaching to the original audience and, uh, by extension, what he's trying to communicate to us today. Let me start off with this. From time to time, a, a song or a story or a piece of art becomes so popular that it gets edited and its reflective component gets removed. Let me give you an example of something that becomes popular and has its reflective component removed. When I was in kindergarten, my friendly kindergarten teacher took out her guitar and had us sit around in a big circle, and she taught us the song, This Land is Your Land, by the famous folk singer Woody Guthrie. I try to pick songs that probably everybody's heard before, and uh, you guys are probably familiar with the way that it starts. Beautiful song, This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, from California to the New York Islands. From the redwood forests to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. What a beautiful song to sing to children. I imagine that I'm not the only one here that was taught that song. It's a peppy and optimistic and patriotic song. But what few people realize is that Woody Guthrie wrote that song in the early 1940s, which was the low point economically uh, of this country during uh, the end of the Great Depression. And the last line of the song, as written by Woody Guthrie, goes like this. In the squares of the city, in the shadow of the steeple, by the relief office, I've seen my people. And they stood there hungry, and I stood there asking, is this land made for you and me? I doubt many of you have heard the final lines of the song as written by Woody Guthrie. It shouldn't come as a surprise that we kind of prefer the other version, right? That we sing to kids because the last thing that we want is to send kindergartners home questioning the foundation of capitalism and developing socialist leanings, right? Here's another one in sixth grade. Everyone in my middle school had to take a semester of chorus. And uh, one of the songs that our chorus teacher sang for us to sing, beautiful melody, beautiful song, is uh, Blackbird by the Beatles. I think many of you have probably heard that song, and it starts off by saying, Blackbirds singing in the dead of night, take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You are only waiting for this moment to arise. It's beautiful lyrics, beautiful imagery. Uh, and the lyrics seem so wholesome and uplifting that I don't think that anybody uh, in, uh, up on the risers or in the audience of that concert took time to contemplate what the original inspiration was for the songwriter. But I've learned in the years since that Paul, McCarthy, uh, uh, Paul McCartney explained that he wrote those lyrics in 1968 after watching a news telecast of the racial and civil unrest in America at the time. He wanted to send an uplifting message to African Americans that better days were ahead. Of course, during that sixth grade assembly, I doubt anybody took the time to reflect on our progress as a nation and that struggle. 
So of course there's many examples of a song or a story or a piece of art that becomes so popular that we kind of strip it of its original inspiration and reflective questions that it asks. And I bring up those two examples because unfortunately we do the same thing with the Bible as well. Some of the stories of the Bible, particularly the stories that Jesus teaches, become so familiar to us that for whatever reason over time, we strip them of the reflective component of what that story or parable is meant to get us to reflect on and question and ask in our own lives. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Matthew 21, 33 to 45, as we uh, examine this story of the, uh, the vineyard that's in disarray. And uh, we're going to do it in three parts. You can follow along with a sermon outline that you got in the bulletin as you walked in. In section one, let's just very, very quickly talk about the parable itself and what happens. Because not all of us know all the parables, and sometimes it gets a little bit uh, foggy. So let's talk in section one about uh, what happens in the parable. In section two, let's talk about the context of what was happening that inspired Jesus to tell this story. And let's talk about the cleverness of the story. There was something clever about it because the people in the original audience got so furious that they wanted to kill Jesus. So clearly there's something about it that made the audience so mad. Let's try to put our finger on that. And then in section three, let's ask what we always ask, so what? Why is this in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn about God uh, and about it through this story for us in our modern lives? It's pretty straightforward. I think most of you were probably able to track along with it just as the worship team read it. But let's just itemize very quickly what's happening in the story that Jesus is telling. In Matthew 21, verse 33, he's saying that there's a group of tenant farmers. There's different ways of farming, but these farmers don't own the land. They don't own the vineyard. And as a result, they work on it, but then they have to give the uh, extra profits. They have to give the extra proceeds to the landowner. Well, in verses 34 to 36, we see that the workers refuse to pay their share of what's owed. They actually reject two attempted collections. Then in verse 37, we see that the landowner sends his son to resolve the conflict. And uh, in verses 38 to 39, the workers are so disgruntled, the situation is so far out of hand that the disgruntled workers actually kill the son. So that's the parable of the vineyard that's in disarray. That's the parable of the contentious farm. A group of tenant farmers are leasing an impressive vineyard. The workers refuse to pay their share of what's owed to the landowner. The landowner sends his son to resolve the conflict, and the workers are so angry and disgruntled and off track that they kill the son. Doesn't seem that offensive, does it? So let's jump in here to section two and try to figure out the context of what Jesus was really saying in this story, and then we can hopefully understand uh, what we can learn from it as well. Well, a lot of times in a story like this that doesn't always click right away, we have to kind of zoom out and talk about the context. What was happening around this story uh, that inspired Jesus to teach it as he did? Matthew 21 starts off in verses 1 to 11 with the story of the triumphant entry. And you guys have probably heard that story before on Palm Sunday. Jesus is riding a donkey into Jerusalem, and the multitudes of Jewish people are gathered around saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. God has finally sent the Messiah. God has finally sent the one that's going to save 
Israel. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem at that moment, there's like at least a half dozen Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled. And some of those are written in your bulletin. Zechariah 14.4, 2 Kings 9.13, Leviticus 23.40, and Psalm 118.26. In other words, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, we're being reminded that God is still in control and God is fulfilling the plan that he has been talking about all the way throughout Scripture, even all the way back in the Old Testament. And yet, what we know is that this same crowd just a few days later in the same week, the same crowd that's saying, Hosanna, God has sent the Messiah. A week later, the same people are saying, crucify him. He's not who we thought. He's not what we expected. And so... One of the elements of this story that we're studying today is that Jesus gives it in the context of great fickleness, right? As the same crowd that said, this is the Messiah, says this isn't who we thought, crucify him. And, you know, I always, each week, try to attach an emotional tone or something that we can relate to to help us kind of put ourselves in the context of the original audience because sometimes as churchgoers, these stories become so familiar to us that we process them like robots and that's never how you're supposed to process a story. Let me try to connect this to a personal tone that I've experienced. When I was in middle school, when I was in fifth grade, I loved basketball and uh, I had a Nerf hoop on my closet doorway. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and uh, every time the Bulls, every time the Chicago Bulls were playing, I would turn it on on the radio and I would act out the action in my room on the Nerf hoop. I was the best person in the whole league. I was the only person in the whole league. And uh, I would, of course, act out everything the announcers were talking about. The story goes like this. The Chicago Bulls lost to our arch rivals, the Detroit Pistons. They lost in the playoffs in 1988, in 1989, and in 1990. So each one of those games, each one of those crushing losses, I was acting it out on my Nerf hoop with a tear in my eye as the season was over for my beloved Chicago Bulls. But I knew we had Michael Jordan. I knew that we had this phenomenal player, the best player in the NBA at the time. And if we could just get past the hated Detroit Pistons, we would finally win a championship. Well, imagine the, role, the, or imagine the emotional roller coaster I went through in 1991 when I'm acting out these games in my room, dunk after dunk, three-pointer after three-pointer. A lot of times I was playing with a rolled-up dirty sock. And uh, in 1991, the Bulls beat the Pistons four games in a row, four games to none. We finally beat our hated rival. We're finally going to win the championship, only to go to the finals and lose the first game to Magic Johnson and the Los Angeles Lakers. Imagine my eighth grade emotions at that time when something that was four years in the works finally started to come to fruition only for us to then lose the first game to the Lakers. Uh, It's meant to be humorous. It's meant to tell you a little bit about myself, but just imagine what that would feel like. And that's the context that Jesus tells this parable because when the crowds gathered for the uh, triumphal entry, they were all saying the Old Testament is coming true. They're quoting all these Old Testament verses. They're waving palm branches. They're declaring that all the things that God had promised are finally coming true, but then a week later... Jesus is seized by Pilate. They're saying, 
Our deliverance is not going to materialize. They're just going through this emotional roller coaster of thinking that everything they had been waiting for was coming true, only just five or six days later to say, we must have made a mistake. This isn't what we've been waiting for. Well, in this same chapter, Matthew 21, uh, Matthew goes on to talk about this rejection that Jesus faced from the religious leaders at the time. He had, was in the process of being rejected by the crowd. And listen to what it says in Matthew 21, 23. Uh, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And they said, well, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And you can read that encounter a little bit more in depth in the next couple of verses. But uh, the context of today's parable comes as Jesus is being rejected by the people and he's being rejected by the Jewish religious leaders as well. He then goes on to tell the parable of the disobedient son, which wasn't quite long enough to be a sermon of its own. Uh, but in Matthew 21, 28 to 32, the story that comes right before this parable that we're studying today, Jesus gives kind of a summary parable of what he's getting at in the parable of the contentious vineyard. And he says this, Who is more obedient? The son that says, I won't obey, and then goes and obeys? Or the son who says, I will obey, and then goes and does not obey. That's the parable, and the crowd can't help but say, the one who actually obeys is the more obedient. That is uh, how Jesus starts off today's parable. He's saying uh, to the religious leaders, your whole life you've outwardly been following God, but now you're rejecting his plan, you're rejecting his son, you're rejecting me. But there's other people who have not been living outwardly obedient lives, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. But when John the Baptist came and said that God was doing a new thing, they reformed their lives. These are the ones who are ultimately the most obedient. And of course, that just came like a slap in the face to the religious leaders who didn't quite see things the same way. So that brings us kind of into the heart of what Jesus is saying that's making the original audience so angry about the parable that uh, was read to us by the worship team. And maybe as it was being read, you struggled to connect with it. Maybe you heard terms like landowner and leaser and vineyard, and you just weren't quite sure where Jesus was going with that. But that would have been very different for the original audience because this would have been a story that they had heard many times. As a matter of fact, it's a story that's told almost word for word with the exact same interpretation at least three times and probably four times in the Old Testament. So let me turn to Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, and let me read to you the story that the religious leaders would have been intimately familiar with and why they would have been so angry when Jesus told it slightly different here during Passion Week. And so listen to how this story is interpreted and how the original audience would have understood it in Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. And it says this, I'll sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press as well. And he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for the vineyard that I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? 
And now I'll tell you what I'm going to do with this vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed and I'll break it down its wall and it will be trampled and I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there and no rain will be on it. And this is the interpretive verse. This is how we can know what Jesus' parable meant as well. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So all through the Old Testament, there was this kind of metaphor that was made that Israel and its people were this vineyard that God, the landowner, had made, but the fruit had gone bad, and so God was going to bring consequences or punishment to it. So that's how even the religious leaders would have understood that story. It wouldn't have been a mystery. There wouldn't have been ambiguity. They would have known from those Old Testament stories this familiar story that Jesus was retelling. Final question here, why were they so mad? Well, Jesus has given them a very, very clever trap here in verses 40 and 41. Listen to this trap that Jesus springs on the religious leaders. He says this, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? And they replied, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard to the other tenants who will give his share of the crop at harvest time. In other words, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, What will the landowner do? What will God do when the workers have rejected the owner? And since they're thinking of people who have been disobedient to the prophets, people who have rejected the prophets, people who have been uh, the the non-religious people who have rejected God, they're saying he'll destroy those wretches, right? Because they're the obedient ones. In their minds, they're the ones that have been doing everything that's been asked. They've been the caretakers of the vineyard of Israel. And then Jesus turns around and says, that's exactly what the Father is going to do to you for rejecting me. And they're livid and they're furious at the way that he has uh, put them through this trap. Well, let's wrap up here in section three and let's talk about what this parable means for us. There's two reasons why Jesus told this parable. The first is significant for everybody who reads the Bible. The first and the main reason why this is in the Bible is that Jesus is documenting that God's plan is on track. He never had to go in a different direction. All along, all the way back in the Old Testament, God was saying that there was going to come a time when his redemptive work to save people was going to detour from Israel because they were going to reject the plan as it was unfolding. Uh, The parable of the farm here, the parable of the contentious farm, Jesus is saying that he is the son of the landowner that's been rejected. He knows that Israel was going to reject him and God was going to start a new phase of the plan to Gentiles or non-Jewish people. And of course, as we read chronologically through the rest of the Bible, as soon as the Gospels conclude, the book of Acts starts and God's people are now primarily Greeks and Romans and Turks and non-ethnically Jewish people. So Jesus is kind of showing us that God had this plan all along and he's about to enter into a new phase of his redemptive plan to save people. And that, of course, made 
the Jewish religious leaders furious. But I want to wrap up with the second, and I want to focus and emphasize the second reason that I believe Jesus told this parable. And that's because there's undoubtedly a reflective component. Remember how we started off by talking about how there's some songs that as you hear them as the author intended, it makes you question certain things about yourself and your attitudes and how you've been living? I think that Jesus wants to put us through the same trap that he put the religious leaders through in this parable. So let me ask you guys two questions to just think about privately. You don't have to write it down and you don't have to say it to anybody else. Do you ever miss out on Jesus' work around you because you want to be the owner instead of the leaser? Do you ever miss out on Jesus' work around you because you have the attitude of wanting to be the owner of things instead of the leaser? And how about this? Do you ever miss out on Jesus' work around you because you want to beat up the messenger? Let's talk about that just a little bit more in depth. Um, The first question, uh, are you ever like the leaser who wants to be the owner? I want you guys to do me a favor. Look outside. Look at that mountain. Look at some of the most beautiful scenery that God has created. Do any of you own that? Is that yours? Or are you, like myself, just a person who's going to been created by the Creator, who's just here with a predetermined number of days, who's just leasing this life and living out what God has given to us? We're not content because we're like the characters in this story as well. That's the reflective component of this parable. God has given us a beautiful vineyard. God has given us a place to live. God has given us work to do. God has given us people to love. But sometimes we want to take over. We want to be the owner. We want to have ultimate control over our life. We don't want to pay rent. We don't want to live under God's authority. Let me just ask you guys a couple of thoughts. Have you ever had thoughts along these lines? I'm going to withhold mercy and compassion to that person because I don't feel like they're deserving. If you think that, you're trying to be the owner. You're not the leaser anymore. Have you ever thought this? I've been following God for many years and I'm about ready to just relax with all this volunteering and serving. I've already paid off what I owe. I'm ready to go into spiritual retirement. It's not what you, that's, that's not what the leaser decides, right? That's wanting to be the owner. How about this? I'm not going to church today. I'm just a little bit too tired. I'm just going to shut it down and start my week a little bit early. There's no way I'm going to church at 4.30 p.m. That cuts right in the middle of my supper. We've all had these thoughts, and when we think like this, we're trying to be the owner of what God has intended us to lease and to faithfully farm for him. Well, there's another part of the story that gets even a little bit more specific. It says when, when the owner is sending the messengers to kind of get the workers back on track, what do they do? They beat the messengers. They reject the messenger. And I would say that sometimes, all of us, myself included, God sends us a message through Scripture. God sends us a message through a Christian song. God sends us a message through a well-placed sermon. And we just want to beat the messenger, right? I don't like the way the preacher told me to act like the Good Samaritan. I bet that jerk never helps anybody. (laughs) Aren't we beating up the messenger instead of accepting the message? 
That new worship song we sang today about trusting God was just a little bit overly simplistic. Nobody's that faithful. And I also hated the melody, right? <laughs> Aren't we beating up the messenger? How about this? The pastor is always picking verses to read about how humans are wretched and sinful. And maybe he is. Maybe the people he hangs out with are. But my circle just isn't that bad. Again, we're just beating up the messenger. And here's where today's story kind of comes together as Jesus uh, offers a statement that kind of wraps up beautifully both what he's saying to the original audience and what he's saying to us as the modern audience. Listen to how he concludes this parable in verses 42 and, and 44. And then Jesus said to them, Have you never read what Scripture says? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will work it and produce fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Let me say that one more time. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament where it's talking about the temple. And Jesus is saying that he is the first stone of the new temple. He is the cornerstone of the new way for people to approach God. And if you fall on Jesus, you'll be broken in a good way. In a way where you'll be rebuilt. But if you go through life and face judgment before a holy God without having fallen on the cornerstone, it says you'll be crushed to dust. And let me just try to summarize what I think Jesus is trying to say with this. What happens at work if you uh, hate your boss and try to take over? What happens to that relationship? What happens at school if you reject everything the teacher tells you to do and just do whatever it is that you as the student want to do? In any of those situations, ignoring the boss, ignoring the teacher, it creates enmity. It creates relational chaos that somebody will have to make up for, that somebody will have to fix. What Jesus is beautifully saying here is that each one of us has created distance and sin and enmity between us and the landowner. And we've done that by trying to take over and be the owner of our lives. And we've done that by beating up the messenger when Scripture has called for us to reform and change and live differently. But the good news is this. Just like in the original parable, the owner sent his son to resolve the conflict. Is, this, is the light bulb coming on? Jesus Christ has come to resolve that conflict. Jesus Christ, the son, has come to resolve our enmity and our disagreement with the land owner. And with Jesus Christ, the new cornerstone, uh, that sin and that discord and that enmity can be absorbed, it can be taken away, and we can be back in fellowship with God the Father, the owner and the creator of the vineyard. Uh, it'll be our privilege in just a few moments to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper as we're dismissed this morning. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and uh, close our service with a final song before we have communion outside together. Uh, I hope another light bulb has come on as you think about what communion is celebrating. When we celebrate communion, we drink what? We drink juice that symbolizes wine that comes from a vineyard and it all ties together because the fruit of the farm, of the vineyard, uh, this fellowship with God that we long for, it's possible through what the Lord's Supper summarizes.
It's possible because Jesus Christ came and willingly died for us on the cross and his blood was poured out like wine. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that we can close with this song and that we can celebrate the peace that we have with God because the son that the landowner has sent.